Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 18. Heavily Mobile Focused. Recorded November 
and you like being with the person that you're traveling with, <laughs> don't disappear the for the next four weeks when you get yeah, back. <laughs> I, I didn't enjoy that part of it. Yeah. yeah. Kathy was very kind. She didn't say anything about it, but uh, yeah. no. anyway, I would have done that differently. Yeah. We, you know, do what you can yep. with life. And we learn from experience. So oh, we have and a great time. Today is Cyber Monday. This is true. It is Cyber I Monday. We're recording on Cyber Monday. Have you bought tons of things on the internet today? I have a shopping cart full at Amazon.com. Oh. Of course, it's been full since last week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but today is the day to pull the trigger, right? Yeah. Maybe there's some discounts yeah. on that. I don't, I, I, so, well, Amazon's been doing like their Cyber Monday or Cyber Monday has been all week or something. I thought like I heard that. something like that, that they've yeah. been doing sales I'll check. All week, know. yeah. But I, I can't, I just never, like none of us in my family got out at all on on the Black Friday thing. Yeah, I didn't either. It's just crazy. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, because, and I have, I have something about this actually as well later about the shopping online thing and mm-hmm. how it's increasing and I just... If I can just sit there at my desk and click a button, I don't want to get in line at Best Buy at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Especially point. if you can get the same deal online if it's available. Right. And usually you can. I mean, there's a few things. Like I, yeah. Walmart was giving away laptops or something crazy wow. like that. But I, I don't want a laptop that bad. <laughs> no. I think all that does is incite riots and mayhem. So. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> it's too special. Well, we have a lot of really good news items today looking at the, the list we have here. We do. So let's go Heavily ahead. mobile focus too, which well, it makes sense. That's where of, things are going. Exactly. So. Yeah. So let's, let's go ahead and hit the news. Okay. So uh, one of the big announcements, there's been many, and uh, I'm ignoring a big one too here, but one of the announcements that I found interesting in the last uh, little bit was that PhoneGap was acquired by Adobe. So uh, for those developing in the mobile space, you've probably heard of PhoneGap, or if you haven't, you should. Um, So PhoneGap is a really neat application platform that lets you create native iOS and Android apps, so native apps, using HTML and JavaScript and CSS. Would you call it a development tool? Yeah, that's probably a development tool. I'm not a developer. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'd... Yeah, I guess it's a development tool or it's a... Framework, it's a wrapper. So you write HTML, CSS, CSS3, and it's a wrapper that uh-huh. you then, it processes your your code and will actually create the uh, the native code base for iOS and Android apps that you can then submit to the Apple Store and the Android Marketplace and sell yeah, your apps really cool. that way. So uh, it's a great concept. Um, there are some, you know, because the, the big benefit is, of course, you have one code base and then you can generate multiple apps. And by the way, it supports also apps for BlackBerry and Windows Phone 7 and even WebOS. So you can target many native application platforms with it. It does have limitations. Uh, we haven't used it directly yet, but talking with uh, friends that have, um, they say it's not. It's definitely not the same as developing an Xcode, for example, for right. iOS. There are limitations. Right. Um, but if it's a fairly simple to medium compl- complex app, then it's a viable route to consider. Um, so the really interesting thing was that Adobe acquired Netobi. Uh, never even realized those two rhymed until I just said them out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Adobe acquired Netobi in a secret move. Uh, and Netobi is the maker of PhoneGap. So that's really interesting because as Adobe moves away from Flash, you know, they're really yeah. supporting HTML5. And they have been all along. You know, they've been really pushing some HTML5 tools for a while. Um, so this is just a very interesting acquisition because it moves them further into the app world, yeah. uh, which makes a lot of sense, I think. 
Um, but one other interesting twist to this is that just before the acquisition, Adobe contributed PhoneGap, the code base, to the Apache Software Foundation as an open source project. Really? Yes. So, but Adobe said that they would support that. And, you know, Adobe has supported other open source efforts. And they, um, for example, the, their current, other current one is they're moving Flex now into, I think, the same, I think it's also into the Apache Software hmm. Foundation uh, as an open source um, project. So Adobe does have a history of supporting open source movements. Um, and anyways, part of that, the uh, name is changing to from PhoneGap to Apache Callback, which I think is a horrid name. That's really bad. It makes... PhoneGap like, is perfect. Yeah. Are, are they keeping PhoneGap uh, like as a fork and then they're doing Apache Callback separately? Uh, no, I think this is it. I think it's all Apache Callback from here on out. Really? That's my understanding. That doesn't make any sense. I know, it doesn't, because PhoneGap's great, because it's like, gap, phone, okay, yes, I get it. Yeah. Zap's on the phone, Fills and there's the a gap, gap between, yeah. Uh, yeah, makes sense, right? Yeah. But Apache callback? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds very developer-y. Let's hope that that report was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll change the name again to something that makes more sense. Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I actually didn't know that this was anything but Adobe, because I stumbled across this at work. Uh, completely unrelated, and uh, it, you know, it was like Adobe, you know, PhoneGap. I was reading; it looked really cool, and I was talking to the guy at work about it, and he 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 knew about it as well. And apparently, they make their money by if you because still, if you develop in PhoneGap, you still have to have like a dev, Apple developer correct license, license in order to and, submit to the App Store right through Apple. So correct. what you could do is you could um, develop your HTML, CSS, web app essentially right. Send it to Adobe people or callback people or whatever it's called now, <laughs> and they will package it and everything for you, and they'll take care of the distribution and all that kind of mess for you. So, but that, that's cool that it's it's still it's still going to be. Um, it is, and, and I think it's a you know to me it legitimizes PhoneGap even more mm-hmm. when a company like Adobe picks it up. Right, you never know exactly what they're going to do with it, but it's at least a sign that they think this is a really important technology, and um, I think it is too. So yeah, cool, interesting. Well, I, the, everybody knows about what I'm going to mention, that the Kindle Fire has been released, being that new big tablet reader thingy from Amazon. And I, I really just kind of wanted to – I don't really have a lot of like wonderful information about this, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts, Ron, about mm-hmm. generally what is the impact for developers for this for web and apps? Because it's Android, albeit they're, you know, Amazon's own little fork That's of Android. Good point, right. But um, – yeah, do, and they have this, OS. yeah, and they have this new fancy Silk browser. Um, it's a it's a seven inch screen, so it's not quite as big as an iPad, which everything's it's been more, kind of going at. Because some of the Kindles are in that size, aren't they? The original right. Kindles are about that size. Because they've I got bigger Kindle. ones too. I think. I think they've got a right. couple sizes. They have a Kindle DX, which is really big, right? Which nobody buys. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen one. In one. <laughs> but then there's a small Kindle, which is about seven inch screen, but it's like the e ink thing, right? Yep. Yep. But this this is being really pushed as um, kind of. It's not quite an iPad competitor, right? Now, I think they're targeting different. Well, they're definitely competing. But they're different devices, right? And I'm not saying that they're competitors. I'm just wondering from a from a perspective for our world here, right? Yeah, you know, UX do you need design. at what point do you show them the iPhone version of your website, and at what point do you show them the desktop version or the website or the iPad version, or do you just say, you know what, 
responsive web design is a really good thing. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Which is where, given, I, where I would get. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. You know, given the rise of tablets, you know, yeah. obviously are shooting through the roof. It's a crucial form factor to be targeting. Yeah. And there are so many tablets out there of different screen physical dimensions as well as um, aspect ratios, right. you know, pixel dimensions. So how do you target 15 different tablets out there? There's probably 100 or 50, ta- at least 50 tablets out there now, right? Yeah. But there's probably five of them that are actually selling more than five units. But yeah. <laughs> but even so, that's a large number of, of resolutions. So I think yeah. responsive web design is a, a very viable solution for, for targeting Potentially, you know, and again, depends on your app and how your website and how you do it, but that could work for desktop, laptop, and tablet, and potentially even mobile, depending, you know, yeah. sometimes that needs to be. I really like that, I, phones. that that option that, that, that we, can, we can do that now. And I think last mm-hmm. podcast I mentioned, mm-hmm. the, I think it's the Boston Globe website does this. Yes, now really yeah, well. I've been playing around with that, and that is just really fun. Yeah, it's really neat. And, and I think John Gruber linked to a, a couple websites last week that do this really super nicely, mm. that you resize the browser and everything switches around. And can you send you me those links? Because I love yeah. seeing good examples of yeah. responsive I'll, design. I'll find it for you. But um, I, I, it just can, to me, it's, I, I don't want to get into like the device differences and blah, 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 because that's not what we're talking about here. But it does kind of drive home the point that you can't just develop for iPhone, iPad, and desktop. Right. You know, and that is correct. If, if you have a website and you've got to have a website from, that's mobile optimized, in my opinion, if mm-hmm. you want to be, it will, you know, depending on what yeah, you're Yeah, you need one right? soon. Within the next one to three right. years, you've got to have one. Yeah. Sure, but so something like responsive web design is a lot better than trying to, you know, figure out all the different options out there. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. and from a UX Absolutely. perspective, mm-hmm. I hate the Kindle Fire. Have you played with one? I have. Oh, yeah. I haven't had a chance to. Yet. I, I I played with one. Uh, one of my friends has one, and he got for his wife. I will not say who, so she doesn't find out. But um, it it just there's no feedback. From when you touch stuff, hmm. some of the to get some of the buttons to come up, you have to tap in the dead center of the screen. Hmm. That's unusual. Instead and, of just anywhere on the screen, right. it's got to be in the center. Right. Hmm. The center, because if you tap to the side, the page turns. Uh huh. Right. Okay. And top, you know, different things happen. Hmm. And so sometimes when you tap, at, once you get the menu up, then you tap on like the home button. Right. And it's thinking. It takes a little bit to but get there's no there. Feedback there's no feedback. Thinking. Yeah, mm. no like hover states type of a thing. I or... think there's a new version of the OS going to be coming out soon. <laughs> I sure hope so. Because because those seem like some really obvious things yeah, to the, target. Well, the device itself has no button on it at all. Wow. And um, a, a lot of Android devices that I've seen don't. Hmm. But they a lot. Uh, I've played with the Samsung Galaxy Tab. Mm-hmm. It has no hardware button on the front, kind of like an iOS device does, which is super handy, by the way. But they, you know, they want to be different. I understand. But so instead, there's like a little home button or home little menu link that's kind of always somewhere on the screen. Okay. Or if you swipe a certain way, it always shows up. So that's that's better. But the uh, Amazon for some mm. reason didn't. Do how, that. how is the Silk browser? Because I was got I got very excited when I was reading about that. That it. Uh, for those who haven't read about it yet, the idea is that it um, combines the processing. Processing a web page is combined on Amazon's cloud servers as well as on the local browser, um, which is called Silk, which is Amazon's proprietary browser. Yeah. Theoretically, it's supposed to be way faster, right? I think the example I heard was like the average web page has 13 server calls for you know images, files, right. and so on. 
and each on average is about 100 milliseconds. But when you're doing calls just on the Amazon cloud, it's like five milliseconds per call if you don't have to. Right. So they're trying to split that so that they're theoretically improving response time of every web page tremendously. Right. And did you notice this? I didn't I didn't notice a uh, big difference. Hmm. I mean, it's part of it depends on which kind of network you're hooked to, I guess. But and it also depends on which website you're going to because the way that their eco structure work or structure, whatever you call it, works is they're gonna store and cache this stuff on their servers right. from really popular sites, basically. Right. right. Or something that you've so visited if you're going before. To a less popular site then Right. And maybe the second time you go to the less popular site it'll be faster because they've got that on their server. Right. Because they've got all the kinds of space to do that. So if everybody, if you're going to MacWorld.com or you know CNN, popular sites, yeah. it's going to be a lot faster than if you pull it up maybe on your your laptop, your laptop or, or other mm. yeah other things like that. So mm. I think it'll probably be more. It'll be faster as more people use it. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, it is still weird to me that everything still goes through their servers. No matter what. Everything goes through somebody's servers. I don't mean like from a privacy standpoint, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, ooh, they're going to watch what I'm doing. Sure. I'm kind of past that. (laughs) Right. You know? But I've given in to the fact that everything is public now. I, I kind of have. Yeah, I was having this discussion with my sister. She's like anti Facebook. She won't do it. Oh wow! Yeah. And I'm like, she basically because of the privacy thing. Right. Like, just give up. Exactly. It's, really, <laughs> it's not resistance worth it. is futile. It totally it is. is the Borg. <laughs> but um, it, it's just weird. From a, I you know I guess Amazon's web service is really robust, so it's not a problem. But anyway, so it's it's something to notice anyway, mm-hmm. and, and to think about when when you're developing for for whatever i think it's a good point definitely and there's a great article in the current issue of wired magazine um which i think is issue 19.12 uh with an interview with jeff bezos um and they asked him a question about the kindles which have the e-ink as you pointed out right versus the fire which is not e-ink right it's an led like every all the other devices out there um screen and they said, you know, kind of what's the scoop? And he, and he says, everybody should have both. <laughs> um, well, which sounds yeah. a little bit, you know, capitalistic. But he said, you know, no, really, because the e-ink is a perfect reading experience. You know, if you're reading a book, this is the best way to it do really it. It really is. It's way better than yeah. an LED screen. Um, but for everything else, you can't watch a movie on e-ink, you know. No. So for that kind of stuff, for consuming video content and all the other stuff you do, um, you know, a browser with an LED screen is the best answer. So he said, you know, they're cheap. And I, I honestly both. agree with him because I got an iPad thinking I do a lot of reading on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's kind of one of my justifications to myself to mm-hmm. get one. And ended up not doing that just because I don't like the LED screen so much for reading. My wife reads everything on her iPhone. So, wow, that's even tougher. Not so, only LED screen, but small screen. Right. Yeah. Which I don't no, And what? I love, I like, I like the iPad for reading. I use a lot of, I do a lot of reading on my iPad mm-hmm. and I like that. I do like that. It's backlit. Um, but I have to be able to turn yeah. the brightness way down because, you know, there'll be times when I just want to read in bed. Right. But then, you know, if my wife wants to go to sleep, she can turn off the lights and I can keep reading and it doesn't bother sure. at all. That so, is, that is the only thing I wish there yeah. was like some sort of a like backlight, subtly bat like yeah. ink thing. Cause I love, I have a, an old Kindle. And I really love the ink of it. I mean, even at first I thought the little page turn, when you page turn the page, you're like this does this black flash thing and right. it doesn't bother me. But um, yeah, I, th- I think both make sense. Yeah. So I like the iPad. Maybe if you've got all kinds of... Uh, I really want to try a fire, so I can't wait to yeah. have They're them be really a little heavy. more popular. 
Really? Yeah, they're like they feel like they're twenty pounds. <laughs> they're heavier than an iPad. Really? And they're, like they're a little small. Size. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I got to try one of these out. It sounds like a very fascinating device, and if the silk thing actually works, it could be, it could be very powerful. It could be yeah. very compelling. Yeah. So anyway, interesting. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, let's see. Next news item that I have is more HTML5 advances for mobile. So there's another company that I've heard about for a while called AppMobi, A-P-P-M-O-B-I, and I really hadn't checked them out till recently. And uh, part of what caught my attention was they have what they're calling a an XDK, a cross-platform development environment. So instead of a, you know, normally it's an SDK, software development kit, uh-huh. so this is a cross-platform development huh. kit. And it specifically does work with PhoneGap even. It integrates with PhoneGap, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. So, uh, And this sounds really awesome. I, I'm looking forward to trying this out. I've been reading all the documentation, but I haven't tried the tool yet. Um, but a limitation with PhoneGap is that you still have to have that native SDK-based development environment um, you know, to submit your to, to, to finalize the build for iOS, for example, or for the Android marketplace. You still have to, the final step takes place in the native environments like you were right. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really, there's there's no testing devices, no testing available for devices within PhoneGap. You have to, again, go to the native SDK. But the, this AppMobi XDK fixes all that. So you can use whatever IDE, integrated development environment, you like, whatever that is. It could be, you know, it could be Eclipse, it could be Dreamweaver, whatever you like. You can keep using that oh, okay. same editor. You can edit HTML CSS, JavaScript, and um, or you can use the uh, the built-in editor that comes with the XDK. You, actually, you can download the XDK as a plugin for Chrome, for example, huh. and it just works within the Chrome browser. So, so editor-wise, you have a wide options for editing, so you can use the editor you like. But the really cool thing is that it has device simulation built in. Really? So you can simulate iPhones, you can simulate iPads, you can simulate a number of different Android-specific Android devices, and then it has native sensors programmed into the simulator. So like, if your app depends on a rotation from yeah. portrait to landscape, you can click a button and rotate it and see how your app behaves That's nice. on rotation. Or you can move it with acceleration, mm-hmm. left, right, up, down, forward, or back, you know, X, Y, or Z axis, <laughs> cool. and see how your app reacts to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for testing, and it's it sounds awesome, and it's free. It doesn't cost anything. Really? Yep, totally free. So uh, I'm gonna definitely try that out. So that's that's interesting. So you need if you you need that you need PhoneGap to use this. No, actually, you don't. So that's one thing I'm a little unclear on, to be honest. Um, like it integrates with PhoneGap, so they're definitely targeting PhoneGap developers right. to make you know add in the pieces that are missing from the PhoneGap world. Mm-hmm. But you don't even have to use PhoneGap, so you can do this XDK just on your own hmm. um, with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then AppMobi has their own um, APIs for various JavaScript things that will that will allow you to still produce an output. Um, only iOS and Android native apps. So that's a key thing. So you can bypass this PhoneGap part of it and just use the XDK on its own, and you can create web apps, mobile apps that run on a web browser Hmm. and iOS and Android. And the really cool thing with their tool is you don't need the the local SDK from Apple or Android because the way their thing works, it's out in the cloud 
that processes your code oh, to create the native code base. Now, you still, to submit it to the store, sure. you still have to have a developer license from Apple. Yes. But, uh, but you don't have to use their software at all. So, hmm. for, so you can use a Windows machine to generate an iPhone app. This is the first tool that lets you do that. Oh, that's big. Yes, that is pretty big. Or you could use a Mac to generate an Android app. So, huh. yeah. That's really so, cool. Yeah, it seems like it has some really good, good features. Um, and then re- relating to all this, you know, one of the issues that I have been talking about a little bit is monetizing web apps. So if you want to, you know, conceptually, I, I still have this, I don't know if it's an existential dilemma, but <laughs> <laughs> I have this issue, which is that uh, HTML5 and mobile web apps that just run under browser seem like the way to go because you generate one code base runs right on every machine that has right. a mobile browser. But as we know, despite that that makes logical sense, that's not how the world works. And the app stores and the marketplaces for native apps are just much more powerful for several reasons. Uh, One is discoverability, right? You can find people's apps in these stores because you're already using them. And if you charge money for them, they already have your payment system in place. So it's super easy to buy them. Um, So AppMobi is working on this. So they're trying to make it easier for... HTML mobile apps or web apps that run in browsers to be able to collect money easily. Oh. So right, that's one of the big gaps. So they have a system now called OneTouch, their OneTouch platform to process payments with OneTouch. And it's very clever. So they market it as working similarly to Amazon and Apple on the Android market. But there's an important difference that makes it even better than that is that you put your credit card info into the OneTouch system that is encrypted on your device only. Oh, it so doesn't credit, stay on their server. It's never on their server. That's nice. Yeah, so it's actually more secure in some ways than those other systems. Huh. And some of those have been hacked, right? Yeah. Uh, I yeah, can't remember yeah. the names, but there's two or three big ones that, you know, 40 million credit cards were exposed when right. so-and-so got hacked. I got an email about one of those. I yeah, yeah I've gotten one in the past, too. So this way, it's only in their server. What's on their server only is the decryption key for the encrypted info on mm. your phone. That's cool. So even if a hacker got that, they'd still have to get access to your physical device and know your password to use that decryption key. So it seems to me that this is a very, conceptually, very secure system. So once you sign up for it, and I've done it, I've signed up for it on my phone, It's it, it doesn't take very long because all you do is input your normal stuff, credit card info, billing address, and that's pretty much it, an email address and password. The more secure the better because that is, again, yeah, part of what encrypts sure. the data. Uh uh, and then once you do that, if you're on a website that accepts one-touch payments, you just say buy, and it says confirm you want to buy this for that amount from that service. Done, done, and it's over. Hmm. Um, so it's really fast. So you can then integrate this one-touch payment system into your own web apps. Oh, really? So, so Yep. So if you want to charge for your web app or you want to charge for content updates to your web app or you want to charge for, like, there's a free version and a paid version, mm-hmm. you can use this system for that billing Hmm. And uh, it sounds very compelling. So, so you would do this if you didn't want to submit your item to the app store, for example, and well, give a- Apple thirty percent cut. Yes, so it works for that. But you still might want to go to the app store, right? Because of the findability, discoverability issues. But keep in mind with their system, it's just like PhoneGap. Um, you, you could develop three versions of this, right? A web app version, yeah, an iOS true. version, or an Android version. Perhaps, but if you're trying to sell a web app and subscriptions, or have somebody you know pay you for the web app in some fashion, or for some extra service as part of the web app, then this would be a payment system that's super easy for people to use. Hmm. 
Because it didn't have to be one or the other, obviously. No, no, and you can use all three. Now, they claim you can use this inside native apps as well for content purchases. Upgrades or whatever. Upgrades, right. That I'm a little skeptical of because Apple is very strict about, you know, in-app purchases. Uh, You know, they give the example of buying merchandise, which I know Apple does not have a problem with. Right. That you can can use a separate payment system for charging for products you're buying through an app. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So... Uh, It does have, so we'll see. We'll see how this pans out. I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. It'd be interesting to see how well this takes off, you know, if if enough critical mass of people actually utilize it. But if they don't, I think it's such a good idea that if if this doesn't succeed, something almost identical is going to succeed from a larger player. Essentially Mm -hmm. what it is is a digital wallet now for any phone. Right. That's really what it is. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. So kind of to summarize the overall topic here is um, uh, with PhoneGap and with AppMobi, web app, and I kind of glossed over this, but web apps can now have the same capability as native apps. That was a big limitation until really recently. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because until really recently, web apps could could only access geolocation information, and that's about it as far as phone sensors. Like you couldn't access the accelerometer. uh, You couldn't access the contact list on the phone. Um, you can get all that now? You can get all that really? now. So AppMobi has their own APIs, mm-hmm. JavaScript APIs that are free now. As of Black Friday, actually, they made all their oh. APIs free and available cool. to anybody. Um, and PhoneGap has had that capability for a while. So you can actually access now on a web app all those native sensors and do everything that you can do in a native app. So we're getting closer to this HTML5 actually being, you know, truly viable. It's really so neat. That's one big step. Um, anyway, so lots of steps in the right direction. The, the big issue, though, to solve still, um, the biggest one out there, I think, is the, the findability issue. Right? Yeah. Native apps just have that big uh, advantage with the App Store and the Android Marketplace. And we need some really good web app stores that become popular that people go to for web apps. Hmm. Sounds I like a know. problem that needs to be solved. Yes, <laughs> it does. By somebody big, I'm thinking. Well, honestly, even even the App Store, like I don't know about the Android Marketplace or anything like that, unfortunately, but you know, the Apple App Store, it, it's almost getting to the point now where it's there's so much crud in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not credits and bad stuff, just stuff. There's just so yes. much that it's hard to Over find. Over 400,000, almost 500,000 yeah, apps. Yeah, I, I don't know. remember what I was searching for. Some util- like I wanted to, um, the iPad does not have a native like voice recorder right. in it like the right. iPhone does. Right. And my daughter ne- needed to record something, her reading some stuff. And so I, I searched like voice recorder, iPad or whatever. And I got so back so many, re- which one do you choose? I know. And they need, that's a big limitation on the Apple store. It's hard to believe they haven't done this. It's some way to filter those results better. Like I've heard so many complaints oh, from people, just randomly from people yeah. about the app store experience. I want to do a search and I'd like to sort on highest rated. Yeah. Uh, m- largest number, no, number of ratings given. Right. Recency of ratings. You can do a or, little bit of that, but very limited. Mm-hmm. And I, I get the feeling that that the App Store experience was designed for a few hundred thousand apps, when and now they've got millions, and they <laughs> haven't too many. Did, done anything to fix that yet. <clears throat> I'm sure they'll get around to it because it will. It, I think it would help. But yeah. yeah, no, that's a big, big hole in the universe out there. So I mean, if someone could make a web app store that really allowed sorting and could market it well, I don't know. 
I'm dreaming, but <laughs> I'm going to hold on to my dream. It's <laughs> the next big project for CodeGeek.net. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, the last thing I had to mention today is uh, I came across an article um, on Macworld. It's been a, a couple weeks, I think, about how the basically the gist of it is that there was a study done by IBM and others that and the results showed that shoppers, if you shop on an iPad, you're more likely to buy stuff, mm-hmm. which really is a big deal, especially if you're someone out there who has any kind of e-commerce site at mm-hmm. all or you're selling anything online, then it really em- emphasizes the need to go toward the mobile thing because so a couple of the quotes out of the article, and we'll have, of course we'll have links to everything on the show notes, but... People who shop for products on an iPad are almost twice as likely as people who shop on other platforms, including Android or PC, to actually buy the item they're looking for. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that, I mean, you could you could guess. Is it because people who buy iPads have more expendable income? Possibly. Um, is it just because when you're feeling an iPad, you feel like you're rich? <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. So, or is it the, the experience? That's an point. I hadn't thought about that. Or is it the experience of uh, using the the UI is so nice and and smooth that it's easier to buy on that? Like going back right. to the the Kindle. This this study obviously didn't inclu- include the Fire, but if you've got a smaller screen. It's a little bit hard to navigate around. Definitely. But if you got something iPad size, you can still pretty comfortably look or at it. Or looking at images. Yeah. yeah it's so much easier exactly. on a larger device. Yeah. And, and it's easier to buy something if I can see a good picture of it. And so I could see why the bigger um, screen is going to be better. I thought it was interesting, it, it, even better than Android or PC. Of course, there's not a lot of really good tablets out there for Android yet. But, right. But even more than a PC was the big kicker for me. That is amazing. And, you know, the one factor you mentioned I hadn't thought of is the uh, income level or, you know, expendable cash right. factor. You know, if you have an iPad, you're spending at least 500 bucks on it. Right. Um, so maybe you've got a little more cash around than, than the average person who's using a PC or an Android device. Theoretically, I, I yeah. But I don't know. That'd be interesting. That, yeah, that's, but that's very fascinating. I saw something similar from uh, Luke Robluski on his blog today. He's got his Data Monday, mm-hmm. and there were stats. It might have been, I'll have to see if it was the same report, but he had a stat about it's like 4.8% of, I thought it was from Black Friday, actually, but uh, purchases were converted on iPads and like 2 yeah, something percent. Yeah, I, I came across an article, uh, it may have been the same data that you're mentioning, a more recent article just from a couple days ago. About how um, how much more is uh, people are buying actually now? I mean, it's like buying this this, this article I'm mentioning right now on MacWorld.com is kind of pre shopping season stuff about how you know get ready for it. It's all on mobile, um, but the other article I, we have a link to is post Black Friday uh, already in the, the reports, but. Um, it you know people are it's interesting that people are going more toward mobile. We talked earlier about how people are going online more, mm-hmm. but now people are going from online to mobile buying. And for example, October 2011 was 11 percent of online shoppers used a mobile device, mm-hmm. and October 2010 is 4.2 percent used a mobile device, and in 2009, 1 percent used a mobile device. So 
it's Age really going up each year. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, more than yeah, double to triple every year. And specifically, they called out uh, people uh, who are they refer to them as social networking driven buyers. People who link from Facebook or Twitter type of a place are uh, have a higher rate of conversion, with a nine point two percent rate of conversion um, than the industry average. That, which is 5.5%. Is that if they're like mentioning products in their stream? I don't know. Okay. It, it was very vague. I didn't get a chance to look at the whole deep study of everything. But um, if you if you linked, if there was a product link in one of those social networks and you went to it, you're more likely to buy it. Twice, almost twice as likely okay. to buy than if you just went to that product from elsewhere, like a Google search or something. Got it. And that makes sense. So people yeah. are recommending it. Yeah, Your it's friends. probably going to be a recommendation, right. and so that 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 does say a lot. But so the people are really focusing on the social media, which is going to go, you know, who knows what direction all this stuff is going to go. But um, but it's interesting that uh, the the most recent article on GigaOM uh, mentions that GSI Commerce, which is a division of eBay, they and they they host large commercial uh, commerce e-commerce sites for large retailers says that there was a 345% increase in U.S. mobile sales compared to last year's Black Friday. Mm-hmm. Huge, mm-hmm. big, big mm-hmm. increase. So once again, just another uh, way, to, uh, reason to go get some sort of good mobile experience, be it iPad, iPhone, or, you know, like we said earlier, some sort of, you know, responsive web design idea where, you resize the browser and just changes on automatically because people are going to go more and more towards mobile and they're buying more on mobile than they're buying on PC these days. Exactly. And in line with the stats you're sharing, uh, like I mentioned, I was looking at Luke Robluski's site today, I like his data Monday reports on mobile yeah. stats and, uh, and his what's next section. He said, uh, he's got, we can put the links to that in the show notes. Uh, 46% Forty-six percent of smartphone and tablet owners are planning to make holiday purchases through their mobile devices. Whoa, that's a big number! And more than sixty percent of mobile buyer buyers will make their mobile purchases from their homes. I guess that makes sense. If you're yeah. shopping, you're probably not. Most people aren't doing that at work. <laughs> Shouldn't be doing that at work, probably. But, um, well, but it's a mobile device, right? If I'm at home, I've got my piece, my laptop. Oh, there, that's a good point. You know. That's a good point. It's interesting that, you know... Mm, yeah, that might be more indicative of the shift to mobile devices as the primary in internet device. Well, and I heard today on another podcast, I forget which podcast I listened to too many, but um, about the 60% of uh, iPad browsing is done sitting on the couch in front of the TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's a lot that is a of lot. browsing when you're sitting at home. So, Yeah. Totally. Speaking of podcasts, what are your favorite ones these days? What do you uh, do? You have top one or two? Um, I know you had mentioned the Back to Work with uh, Merlin Mann. Right, I've really enjoyed that one. That? Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, I've, I've been enjoying Andy Anatko's uh-huh. podcast he has out now. He has a good. Uh, it's on the Five by Five Network. It's okay. called the Anatko Almanac. And what does he talk about on there? Uh, a lot of stuff I have no con- no idea about. <laughs> like, but it's interesting because it, he's he's kind of fun to listen to. He talks about comic book stuff a lot. The podcast I just listened to today talked about Star Wars and, you know, it's a little bit cool. nerdy, geeky I stuff. Haven't, but. I haven't heard his own podcast. I've, I listen to him on Mac Break Weekly. Yeah, yeah I listen to that a lot. The other fellow is also very good. 
on Mac stuff. I forget as often on there, but Andy's always on there. And yeah, I, I yeah, but well, he's only eight, eight or nine episodes into the, his own oh, okay. podcast. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. When I went to the, uh, back to work one, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a little rambly. <laughs> they're you, very rambly. Anyway, okay, they're very <laughs> rambly. And when you said you had listened to all of them, there's like 50 of them or something. Well, there are now. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. That's a lot of listening. So I didn't, I didn't catch up to all of them, but I, I have been enjoying the ones I've listened to. But uh, I got to be in the right, right frame of mind. I do like it because they delve into, you know, it's tech stuff, but really it's personal. I mean, it's like general philosophy of life and yeah how, I mean, it's, know, it's a good work and, yeah. wide variety yeah it's very things. broad it's not as tightly uh, narrowed as some of the other podcasts which I, I enjoy the breadth of it and so i've been listening to and not common act the uh, let's see what else i've listened to a couple episodes of hypercritical mm, don't know that one uh, John Syracuse does that one. It's also on the, I've been listening to a lot of the five by five network ones. I used to listen to a lot of twit network mm-hmm, ones, mm-hmm. but I've been liking the, the five by five ones a lot more. And also, um, like I listened to a couple paleo, like everyday paleo and latest in paleo podcasts. That's cool. But, and my daughter, I've been listening to my daughter's podcast. My daughter has a podcast. Nice. Big announcement. Wow. She's up to episode two. Excellent. <laughs> what is her topic? She's, well, she's just um, doing, she's reading uh, short stories and classic books, like nice. public domain stuff. But Nice. And so that's read by Hannah.com. So you'll have to go subscribe. Yes, I'll have to check that out. She's, it's, she's really cute. She's nine years old and she really wanted to, she's like obsessed with making money. <laughs> and so she wanted to start a business. And so she uh, she wanted to do audiobooks because she likes audiobooks. And I'm like, right. well, sure, you could sell audiobooks, I guess. And, but she wanted to, to build up a, an audience first. And so she's building up an audience by having a podcast and getting practice in doing, reading awesome. these audio books on her podcast for free. And then when she's got a good audience, she'll start selling some stuff on, online. So she's quite the little entrepreneur. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. But she's having a lot of fun. All right, let's move on to our blog pick. Steve, what do you have for us well, this episode? Uh, this is another one as I swore I had put picked this before, but I looked at our uh, website and it has not been picked yet. It's uxmatters.com. And I think, I think I've, I've mentioned an article maybe in a news item before, but yeah, I haven't picked it as, as a blog yet. Sure, sure. Um, it's, it's one of those sites that looks like it's still being driven on like Joomla or something <laughs> like really – like five years ago, <laughs> the design's not so much wonderful, but um, it's got a lot of really good uh, content in there. Uh, really across the board as far as UX stuff goes. So UX and is it like one author or contributing authors? Uh, or? No, it's it's a lot of different authors. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have, like just scanning through the front page, every single post is a different author. Cool. So for the most part. But, cool. Yeah, good stuff. And the one I picked um, this week is uh, Dave Thomas, the Pragmatic Programmer. And I, I actually don't even remember how I ran into this, but I just ran into this in the last couple of weeks. And um, I was searching around and for web stuff and uh, you know the kind of stuff that we like to talk about and just stumbled across this. And it was awesome because he had a post very much relating to what I did going to Italy for three weeks. Yeah. So he's got a post here that... Uh, He's trying an email experiment for two weeks. He was on vacation, and the subject line was, I'm on vacation, and I deleted your message. 
really? And he has that's a, like his auto reply. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> and he's got the whole content of the email in here. It's very short, but you should read it for sure. And he basically that was his plan was to just delete all the emails um, that came in, but telling people that he was going to do that. And he gave people an option that they could send him uh, with something urgent in the subject line, but gave them other ways to respond. Mm-hmm. That was like the last resort. And um, so I that really appealed to me because, and I just, you know, I found this after I got back from Italy, but my plan with Italy, so what I did when I got back, I had like 2,500 emails. You're and, kidding and me. And I was like, there's, <laughs> oh, no. like, there's no way oh. I'm, I'm going to even this, do that's this. That's ridiculous. Not even going to do it. So, of course, I had... Taught my, you know, we transferred everything over to my team ahead of time, project wise. So, right. and we had, con- I sent two emails to all of our clients, so they knew I was going to be gone. So that was key, and uh, then set up an autoresponder that I was gone, and to remember to contact one of our other three people. Right. So that was my response. I didn't say I was going to delete them or anything, mm-hmm. but when I got back, there were so many. I just that's what I did. I didn't delete them, but I just archived them all off into one label in Gmail. So yeah. they're there if I have to go back. Right. And it was just too much. I literally just declared email bankruptcy at that point and just went forward. From, buck zero. From the day I got back. <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. Yes. It's really good. And it worked fine. So there were probably, in reality, I think there were two messages that were probably really important that were in that stack. And one was a friend that actually got injured in an accident. And then uh, I forgot the other one was off the top of my head. But eventually I learned about both of them other ways, you know. Right. So I would have found out much sooner about both things. But, you know, no deal has fallen through. The right. company hasn't fallen apart. Um, you know, bad things didn't happen. And I just let it go. But I told people, you know, wasn't going to respond. So it worked. Anyway, so uh, Pragmatic Dave here, Dave Thomas, Pragmatic Programmer. He uh, does a follow-up blog post to say how it worked, and he said it worked out really well for him also. worked incredibly well. And here were some of the uh, – he got positive feedback about it. He mm. was worried about people abusing the urgent option he gave them, yeah. and he said he only got five or six emails with the urgent flag over two weeks. So very That's few, pretty good. That's not bad at all, right? Um, and he said the experiment had two positive effects on his life. First, the vacation was a lot nicer, not having to worry about sacks of email. Um and the other side effect, he said, was that the quality of email he received has improved and the quantity has decreased. Since that. And I have I have had the same experience. I get fewer emails really? now than before, hmm. and they're generally more on topic. Um, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I would concur with that experience. And he, he says he has a theory. He said during the course of the preceding few years, he had become something of a slave to his email. He'd answer stuff as it arrived. And those rapid responses in turn trigger another round of email and another, right? And it just goes yeah. on and on. And I have noticed, so what I've done over the last whatever time frame is I don't respond immediately usually. I respond usually the same day. But if I'm on and an email comes through, I actually am conscious. I might read it. But if it's not urgent, I often will wait till later in the day. And then I just you know go back and respond to a bunch in a row. But several mm-hmm. hours later on purpose because I've noticed the same thing, right? If you respond and they respond and then you Changes go, the expectation. It does. It's like, yeah. okay, he's going to get back to me today sometime. And then it's like it's not as urgent in that person's mind either. You know, most things aren't right in the web world. No. There are a few things that are, but 99% aren't. So my, my suggestion for uh, – I'm curious for feedback. I'm curious on your strategies for managing email because this is a constant battle for me. So if you have ideas yourself, I'm interested to hear them on the – you know comments on our blog on the air on the website on uh, einstein and sockmonkey.com um but my suggestion is is if you're a slave to your email and respond quickly don't do it 
Find a, you know, <laughs> pick three periods a day when you check and respond to email, maybe morning, midday, and afternoon, and call it good. And everything else can wait till the next day. That's kind of what I've end up, ended up doing. I mean, I don't have specific times that yeah, I do I that, but I, I just close the email program until mm-hmm. I, you know, so I can get some stuff done. And that's key. What you just said there, closing the email program. Yeah. If it's open, you'll click over to that tab or your alt, alt tab over, control mm-hmm. tab over to that window, and then you'll see stuff and you can't resist responding, right? You got to do right. it. <laughs> and what I've even done with some people, there's, there's always the few people who just send you too many emails mm-hmm. asking too many questions. <laughs> yes. I just, there's a few people like that at work and I just, I just don't respond at all. Mm-hmm. And and if, if they re- reply like again and say, Hey, I haven't heard back, then I'll, okay. Right. They meant it this time. Right. Right. <laughs> but it, it, it does. The slave to the email comment would, I think rings home to so many people. Yeah. That, Cause that's you have why to get stuff done. Like you're saying, right. it's like constant interruption. That's the problem. And the goal, you know, my goal is to try to carve out a few a couple of blocks a day that are at least an hour long, preferably a couple hours long, mm-hmm. where I can focus on some tasks, you know, writing right. up an estimate, um, reviewing a website, working on some client project for a focused period of time. Right. Then I can be efficient and get through it. And, you know, for all the programmers and designers out there, right, I mean, you, you have to stay focused on that continuously. Otherwise, a two-hour project takes you five hours because you keep getting And I think people and- who can learn, like, you, like you're doing, who can learn how to deal with the, the digital onslaught that we have these days those are the people who are stay the sane digital detritus <laughs> those are the people who stay sane in in the digital world because there are people like my wonderful sister who just is being dragged kicking and screaming into this mm-hmm. world and she hates it and mm-hmm. she's going to fight it as hard as she can but you you just have to find ways to deal with it you yeah, know and you do. sometimes that that just means deleting 2500 email messages and true. being okay and, with and it by the way i do the same thing with my phone i used to um i carve out the morning is when i work on client projects and the afternoon is when i try to schedule meetings and i return phone calls so for more than a year on my phone i used to have a mess my outgoing message was um i'm in a, i am typically in a creative bubble in the mornings and i return calls in the afternoon and I did that for about a year, and I noticed the same effect as on my email. The number of calls I got oh, that decreased. that was your voicemail. That was my voicemail. Okay. The number of calls I got to my phone decreased. Um, I got a higher percentage in the afternoon because clients learned that if they wanted to reach me, that was the best time to call. Um, and it worked wonders. So, I mean, not only did I carve out time for myself, but I also got a higher quality of phone you know, phone hmm. calls and at better times of the day. So. It was scary at first, and I've talked to other people about this. Like, oh, I couldn't do that. I just can't. Yeah, you know, I got to pick up the phone when it rings. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe no, you, you don't. don't. <laughs> yeah, I, tell, I think I have on my voicemail, or at least I used to, that I might call you back. Because <laughs> 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 honestly, I, had, I that, that is a difference of working. You know, having my own business, maybe, and <laughs> exactly. working for somebody else. I am going to call people back. <laughs> right. Right. That's, okay. That's a good point. But I mean, like right now, I, I think I have on my phone, I've got like 18 unlistened to voicemails. It, I Steve? Kinda, <laughs> I don't think you're any of those, but no. um, it, it's kind of the same thing. I, I know not to call you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's kind of the same thing, though, that if, if, if it's important, somebody will call me back, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not going to leave the meeting to answer the phone so right. you can ask me, you know, some dumb question. Right. Anyway. But anyway, everybody, you have permission to set good boundaries and expectations. That's the key. Yeah. You can set good boundaries, but set boundaries good expectations, and expectations at the same time. And 
works great. And super briefly, one other blog pick I have to mention today is 24ways.org because this is the advent calendar for web geeks. And it starts on December 1st, runs for 24 days, and they have articles by 24 different people on excellent, latest, cutting-edge web design and development and usability and all that stuff topics. So 24ways.org, check it out starting December 1st, and it's it's always good. And they have all the articles from all the past years are there, Um, maybe five or six years worth or so. Anyway, it's really good stuff and great way to stay on top of the current leading edge edge, edge of, you know, what we're into. And cool. So schedule time for that. That's, that's worth making time for. Cool. Well, I think that kind of closes it out for the show for episode 18. Um, make sure to visit the website, einsteinandsockmonkey.com. Subscribe to the, the podcast in iTunes. We've got links from the pod, the website, obviously to do that. Thanks for the folks who've been rating us on iTunes. Keep doing that and telling your friends about how wonderful and, and hilarious and informative we are. Even I, if it's <laughs> sporadic. <laughs> Even if it's sporadic. And uh, you can find me at uh, clevercubed.com and at clevercubed on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter, Ron underscore Z, and on the web, codegeek.net. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at BlackLabWorld.com.